Well, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We've been on a journey the last several weeks just walking through the book of 1 Timothy, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy, this young pastor. And I've told you, church, and share with you that in my understanding of this, of this, uh, this book, this letter, I see it as a manual, so to speak. It's kind of God's guidebook. Here's how the church is supposed to operate. Here's what I want the church to be doing. Uh, that's, that's one way to look at it. Another way to see this is look at this as God's playbook. He calls the plays, and he calls the plays. We put them into operation, and when we put them in operation, then we become a healthy church, kind of like on the sports field. Yesterday, you sat and watched games. Our team won, Kentucky. Michigan, my team, some of your team, they won. Why? They saw the playbook, now, and they put it into action. Now, some, that team red and gray and silver, they didn't read the playbook very well. They didn't put it into action very well. Sorry, Danielle, your, da your husband asked me to work that in just for you, just for you. Still wore your red and gray, though. I'm proud of you still wearing your red and gray. But that's what this book is. What'd you say? Oh, you're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> Smiling ear to ear on that one, aren't I? That's what the playbook is. This is Timothy, God's, God's playbook. He says, here it is. Here's how I want you to behave, church. Here's how things should be put into action. And then last week we said, you know what? Another way to look at this is a blueprint. And he's given us a blueprint for leadership, a blueprint of how to function. Now, most of us in here be, would say, I am excited that my house was built, started with a what? A blueprint. Your, your builder didn't go out and say, well, let's just get some two-by-fours. Let's get a little bit of concrete. Let's just throw some concrete down. Now let's put some blue, some some two-by-fours there. Hey, well, we need some nails. Why well, want to put some screws here? No, they had something to follow. They had a plan to follow. And as they follow the plan, the house is built. I'm so glad they follow a plan or a blueprint when it comes to building a car down at Toyota or whatever kind of car you drive. They follow a system or a plan. And that's what God has given us. Now, we, the church, sometimes we've, we've ignored the blueprint or we've ignored the plan or we haven't understood it. And so what we're looking at is God's plan, God's playbook today, and we've been looking at this last several weeks. I want to go back and just kind of review a little bit from last week and kind of expand on a little bit from last week because the topic is so important. So let's begin with verse 1. Here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's family? God's church. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he'll not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Now here, Paul is beginning with the leaders and he starts out with verse one talking about an aspiration. He said, those who aspire some translation says those who, who desire. Now that word overseer, we talked about this last week, can be translated as bishop, but it's also translated in five different ways in the New Testament. Overseer and bishop and elder and pastor and shepherd are all interchangeable words. 
It's a word for those who, who want to lead the flock, lead God's church, who want to shepherd God's people. And so he starts off and says, you have to have a desire, you aspire towards that. And then he says, once you have that desire, you start growing to, towards that. Well, what am I going to grow towards? What, what, what am I supposed to look like? What am I supposed to do? And he gives us that list of qualifications of a godly leader. He doesn't say just aspire towards it. He says, now here's what that looks like. We're going to see as we go through a couple lists today that this is not just for a godly leader. This is for anybody who wants to aspire to be a godly Christian. This is one list we can measure for ourselves and go, how am I doing? But here he gives us 14, 14 attributes of a godly leader. And personally, I, I don't think they're optional. I think they're essential. What we tend to do is we tend to read scripture and go, well, let's knock that one out, or I'm not really sure you really meant that one, or oh, that applied back then, it doesn't apply today. None of us would want to build a house and a builder go, you know, I know it calls for a leg bolt right here that's six inches long that can hold 500 pounds, but let's just throw out the leg bolt because I don't know what's really needed. None of us want to know that our builder was supposed to build a, a foundation or a wall out of concrete that was supposed to be 12 inches thick, and they decided, well, let's not make it 12 inches. Let's, let's just make it 10 inches thick. Let's just skimp a little bit and change the plan. We'd be like, what are you doing? None of us would want to be driving down the road and the car fall apart and find out that the builder said, you know what? Those tie rods are really not that important. Let's just not put the tie rods in. There's plans to follow. And same in God's kingdom. There's plans that he has given us. And the apostle Paul has written his letter and said, here's God's plans. Church, we read the plans, we understand, and we do our best to implement them. And so he gives us this list. I want to just hit these quickly because they're important for us to understand um, these character qualities. He says above reproach. It means blameless. It doesn't mean not sinless because all of us have sinned and all of us know we still will struggle with that sin. But, but what it means is there's no valid charge that can be, be brought against him. Someone can't say, you know, well, that person's a scoundrel or that person's a cheat or that person's a drunkard, that there's this charge that can be brought against you. And if someone were to bring it forth, you go, yeah, that's me. I'm living that kind of lifestyle. And he says that we should be above reproach. And then the rest of the qualifications elaborate on what it means to be above reproach. And so not only is he above reproach, he says, now here's what it looks like. He says the husband of one wife. That means, it literally means a one woman man. It, it means that that the issue is not about a man's marital status, but it's more about a sexual purity. And guys, this is a challenge in our society today. It was a challenge back then. That's why it was brought up. But we have social media attack. We have television attack. We have images that attack constantly in our workplaces. Maybe there's temptation. He's saying, listen, be true to your wife if you're married. Be, in tr be true to sexual purity as well, even if you're not married. This is all about a sexual purity issue that we're not in, uh, being involved with things that are not of God when it comes to our sexual purity. He goes on and says temperate, which literally means wineless or unmixed with wine, not self-indulgent. So he gives a little bit of warning like, hey, you'll be watching out for the alcohol consumption. It's interesting. We're going to see it. He hits this a couple of times in his chapter. He says self-controlled, prudent, able to make wise choices, what he's talking about. The leader must be well-disciplined, have that self-control that they're controlling their lives and that they're making choices that are godly, respectable, refers to an orderly lifestyle, a well-arranged lifestyle, a well-organized, well-thought-out. It means they don't get sidetracked from what the main thing is. 
He says a godly leader understands the main thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. And they don't get sidetracked in all kinds of other stuff. A godly leader says, I'm going to do that. I won't get sidetracked. Hospitable. Now, for some of us, we think the word hospital means I have some people come over and just have some burgers or come over here and watch a football game with me or watch a basketball game. And that might be part of being hospitable. But the word hospitable actually means to love strangers, to love people who are not in the family of God, to love people who don't know Jesus. So yes, you may have some people over and have some grill out some hot dogs and hamburgers. You may have some people over and watch a ball game, so to speak. But in that, your purpose and your goal is to love people who don't know Jesus with the hope to have Jesus kind of conversations eventually that hopefully would lead somebody to a faith decision to want to follow and to know your God. He says they got to be able to teach. That's found here, and it's found in 2 Timothy 2, 24. It's the only place we're talking about able to teach. But Paul's like, listen, you got to be able to teach. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be able to stand up in front of a group of people and teach like I'm doing today. It doesn't necessarily mean that you got to be able to stand up a group of 30 or 40 people, but you've got to know God's word well enough that you can teach God's word to somebody else. At bare minimum, in a one-on-one setting, could you sit down and share the gospel with somebody? Could you tell somebody the good news of who Jesus is and maybe even then do that with three or four or five or 10 or 15 or 30 or 50 or 100 as God blesses? But you gotta know the word to be able to share it with somebody else. He says, not given a drunkenness. This is where it gets interesting. He says, wait a minute. Be temperate. Remember, it means wineless, not unmixed with wine. Then he says, not given a drunkenness, which literally means not beside wine, sitting beside the bottle. In other words, alcohol was an issue back then. And the leaders were struggling with alcohol. And how much alcohol? Should I drink alcohol? Should I not drink alcohol? You know, First Peter, it says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Let me ask you, church, would some people be surprised if you were at a party and you decided not to pick up the wine? Would you be surprised you decided not to pick up the bottle of beer? See, in our culture today, that's become very acceptable. Very acceptable. But church, I, I think there's a major warning here. Now, he says, don't, don't give over to drunkenness. So people get in that argument, well, I'm allowed to drink, not allowed to drink. Yeah, you're allowed to drink. But Paul's given a major warning here. Be temperate, don't give over to drunkenness. And I think he's thinking about also when he wrote and said, everything's permissible, but not everything's beneficial. So are you allowed to have a glass of wine? Sure. You ought to have a beer? Yeah, sure. But that may ruin your testimony. That may say the person who's around you going, wait a minute, I thought they were a Christian. Why are they doing that? Or it may lead them to think, well, if they embrace it, I can embrace in it. Or it may lead your children down a path that's, that's going to be unhealthy. You've probably heard it said before, what one generation does in moderation, the next generation does in excess. So, you know, it may be okay for you to have a few beers in your refrigerator and you say, I'm going to just have a beer every now and then. I get home from work and I'm tired. I just want to kind of chill down and relax. And a beer is okay for me. And it may be okay. But what about your child who's watching you? You may be setting them up to become an alcoholic. Because they may go, well, my mom and dad did that. And they don't learn the balance of it. And so there's a major warning here where he said, hey, you've got to watch out for the alcohol. So, yeah, it may be permissible but it may not be beneficial. And if you want to be a church leader and you embrace in it, then people are going to, wait a minute, you're leading in a church? What does that mean 
for your church? What does it mean for you? It may affect their witness or who they are. Not violent, literally not a giver of blows. The idea of someone who fights back. Elders need to react to difficult circumstances and potentially explosive situations with gentleness and calmness. It literally means that the elder would put their fist away. That when tough times come, you're not going to raise your fist and say, come on, let's take this out back. Let's settle the matter the good old days. That's not what they were supposed to do. First Peter 2 says when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. Talking about Jesus. When he hurled the insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusts himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, in other words, he didn't fight back. He left it to God. God, you're in charge. God, you balance it out. God, you take care of the situation because physical violence is absolutely out of the question when it comes to spiritual leadership. I must just say, it's dangerous and it's disastrous to have a person who's trying to be a spiritual leader but deals with physical violence. And let me just speak to that for a moment. Is physical violence in your home, man towards woman, woman towards man, towards your children, it's not of God. It's not God's plan. You're dealing with that in your home, and you're like, yeah, Brian, if you knew what was going behind behind my doors, my husband is hitting me. My, my wife is violent, and it happens both ways, folks. It's time to get that stopped. We'd love to walk with you in that journey and help you and go, okay, let's, let's find the help. Let's find the resources. That's not God's plan. And by no means should violence be and the person who's striving to be a godly leader. Not quarrelsome, reluctant to fight is what it means, peaceful, prone to pardon, quick to overlook an offense. When you get offended, I'm going to overlook it. Some people like to argue. Some people like to stir things up. An elder is not to be contentious. An elder is to know, how do I calm the situation. John Maxwell in some of his writings shares the example about two buckets. And he says, as a leader, you're always carrying two buckets. And if you walk into the workplace, or you walk into the business, or you walk in the home, or you walk in the church, you have two buckets. When you walk in a room, you might see a little spark of a fire. You have a choice. Are you going to pull out of one bucket the kindling and the wood to feed the fire and make it get bigger? Or are you going to take the water bucket and throw it on and put the water, put the fire out? That's what the scripture is talking about, not quarrelsome. Leaders who are willing to walk into a home situation, calm down the situation, walk into a church situation, help it calm down, walk into a business situation, help it to calm down, not someone who's looking for the next fight. Not a lover of money. Literally means not fond of silver. Literally, but he keeps material things in proper perspective, not covetous not stingy or financially ambitious. His first concern is not the money, though. He serves for the right motives. And he says, I don't want them to have a choice to that they're doing this for the money, that they're going to get paid this money or receive this kind of income because there are things that they're doing. Money can destroy men, it can destroy men, marriages, and it can destroy ministries. And so he's basically lifting up saying, who's first? He's lifting up the idea, what do you love more, God or do you love money? Is God really number one? He must manage his own family well. Another must be able to lead his own family. Basically, what, what Paul's saying here is, listen, if you can't handle your immediate family, how are you going to handle God's family, God's bigger church? See, the church is more like a family than it is a business. 
Now, do we operate with some business principles? Absolutely. But first and foremost, we operate like a family. And so that's why his home management skills are important. How well is he doing in managing and leading his family? Not a recent convert. See, leadership demands maturity. And so Paul gives a warning. He says, listen, you can't put new people in, in there. Maturity takes time. You're growing your faith takes time. In order to grow with your experience and with your wisdom and with discernment, it takes time. And so many times you have to go through years and sometimes brokenness and tears before you ever get the experience and the wisdom and the discernment. And he says, listen, you have this as a goal, but realize it's going to take time. You can't become a Christian today and six months or a year or even sometimes two years down the road go, hey, listen, now I'm leading a church because you got to grow in maturity number 14 he says you must have a good reputation with outsiders in other words the lost world would recognize that this man is different this man walks to a beat of a different drum he lives what he preaches his neighbors may not agree with him but his neighbors respect or admire him because you know what that man lives what he teaches or lives what he proclaims and so he's looking at all these character qualities and says, here, this is an elder, this is a pastor, this is someone who's leading the church. And then Paul turns the corner and after speaking to the shepherds, and he says, now let me talk to the servants. Look at verse 8. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. The word deacon comes from diakonos, which actually means a servant. Just someone who serves. An attendant rendering free service is another way to explain that word. Someone who's kind of willing to pick up the mop, so to speak. Someone who's just willing to pick up the hammer. Someone who's willing to move a chair. Someone who's just take on the meaningless task and go, it has to be done, and I'm the one who's willing to do it. John MacArthur said, Scripture defines no official or specific responsibilities for deacons. They are to do whatever the elders assign them or whatever spiritual ministry is necessary. Now, in our churches, many times we say, well, we have our eldership and we have a deacon board and that's another position. And we do not have a deacon board at center point or anything like that because we don't see it in Scripture. We ask people to serve when there's a need for serve. We ask them to step up as a ministry leader as a service task and lead a service area like taking care of mowing the property and caring as those needs arise. But he goes through here and says, now look at, if you're going to be a deacon, here are some other character qualities to look at. Worthy of respect, serious in mind as well as in character. Someone that they take the work of God serious. So if they've been asked to do a servant task, they've been asked maybe to help set up chairs, they've been asked to help in a kid's area, they've been asked maybe to help with the fall fest or maybe, maybe something like generosity fees, they go, I'm taking this serious because I know this is part of God's work and I'm going to put my best foot forward. Not double-tongued. 
The NIV translates it sincere. In other words, without wax. A deacon's speech must be consistent. Not saying one thing to one person, another thing to someone else. And instead of being a spreader of gossip, a deacon must be a stopper of gossip. Because when you get into the church and you start serving, you hear little mumblings, you hear some gossip, you hear some stuff that's not healthy to the body. And he's like, you got to control your tongue. Not indulging in much wine. Find it interesting? He tells us to be temperate. He tells us to not give over to drunkenness. He tells us not to indulge in much wine. Literally to turn one's mind to or to occupy oneself with. In other words, stay away from it. Must have been an issue back then. And God knew, you know what's going to be an issue in people's lives? So I come back. He says, get it out of your life. Not pursuing dishonest gain. They must not see their service as a, as a way to get money. In other words, he's saying, listen, you serve, and you serve with a heart for God's kingdom, and you don't see it as a way to, to, to increase your pocketbook. A lot of times the deacons are one that handles the money, or the servants are one that handles the money in the church. They count the money. They, they oversee the budgets. He's saying, listen, you handle this in a way that honors God. They must keep hold of the faith. And they must know the word and live the word. When he says keep hold of the faith, he's saying, listen, a deacon needs to be studying God's word. Because what do you say to the elders? You've got to be able to teach God's word. So they've got to know God's word. They've got to be tested. They need to be proven, approved by testing of their faith. They've got to walk through some stuff. They've got to walk through some trials and some difficulties of life. And that's how they get tested. And as they go through the testing of faith, then their faith grows. Now, verse 11 is an interesting one. Verse 11, I... Is a, is a verse where you're like, okay, now what is he saying here as he now kind of stops for a moment as he was talking about men who are his deacons and now he flips over and says, well, let me address the ladies too. Some people call it deaconesses. Now, that, that word's not actually in the New Testament. That word's not actually there. But he says, in the same way. In the same way. So he's talking the, to the deacons and he said, listen, this is how you're to live your life. And then he turns and says, now in the same way. So obviously he's talking to lady servants and he's saying, now in the same way, you're going to serve in the church. And as you serve in the church, here's how you should serve. Some would say, well, I'm not sure if that's men or women. Well, look, again, if you look at it, there were no qualifications for elder wives listed in scripture. So why would you turn around and say, now deacon wives, here's what you're supposed to do. No, this is actually talking to women who serve as a deacon or deaconess. And they want to serve along in God's kingdom. So Paul doesn't actually use that word. It came up later uh, in, in time, but uh, it's not a word that was used in that time in the Greek language. And so he says, here's some qualifications for women who are serving. He says the w women is supposed to be worthy of respect dignified, as he says in verse 11. Serve soberly and take the work of God seriously. Isn't that interesting? He tells the men, take the word of God seriously. He tells the women, take the word of God seriously. As you serve, do it with all your heart. He says, not malicious talkers. In other words, he says, no gossiping, no slandering. He says to the men, you control your tongue. He says to the women, you control your tongue. See, when you work in a church, you see a lot of things and, and hear a lot of things that make for sometimes a lot of good conversation, kind of spicy conversation. Well, did you know he said? Did you know she did? Did you hear about this? Did you hear about that person's life? And he's saying, listen, men and women, for the church to be healthy, you stop. You close up the mouth. You don't talk about people. That's why those who serve and those who lead must learn to control their tongues. He says, ladies, you must be temperate. What does the word temperate mean? Wineless. 
alert, watchful, vigilant, not self-indulgent. So he says to the men, hey, watch your alcohol consumption. He says to women, watch your alcohol consumption. You know, four times in this one chapter, he brings up the topic of alcohol. One of the lessons when you study scripture is when it's repeated over and over again, it's obviously an issue God wanted us to get. He brings it up in several different ways here. He's saying alcohol causes all kinds of challenges and problems. So he tells the men, he tells the women to watch it. Lastly, he tells the ladies, trustworthy in everything, which means to be faithful. No matter the task or assignment, they'll be faithful and dependable. And he says, you've got to be trustworthy. When you say you're going to do something, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Be people, be a lady who is trustworthy. And so he's talking to the guys first, and he turns over and talks to the women, and then he flips back and talks to the guys and says, you must be the husband of but one wife. Sounds like what he said the elders, isn't it? Be a one-woman man. He says, must manage his household well. Oh, that's interesting. Same thing he said the elders. Be someone who's managed your home well. And then verse 13, he talks about the rewards of faithful service. He's like, if you're faithful in your service, then basically, possibly, God will promote you. You just be faithful in the little things. You take on a small task, you think, well, that's an awful small task. Do it and do it with all your heart as for the glory of God. And then sometimes he'll move you up to a level of, of promotion, so to speak. God might do that. There's some examples of that. You think about the original seven deacons or servers in Acts chapter 6. One of those men, his name was Stephen. In Acts chapter 7 is when Stephen started as a deacon, as a servant. He became an evangelist, started preaching and teaching the word. And you know, it was Stephen who preached to the apostle Saul, or Paul, before he became Paul. His name was Saul. He's the one that shared the message, and he had a major influence in Paul becoming a Christian, and Paul surrendering Jesus. So God took this guy who was a servant and had to be an evangelist, and he preaches to Saul, who then becomes Paul. And then Philip in Acts chapter 8 started as a deacon, started as a servant, but he held a crusade in Samaria and he led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. Started out with just doing some servant tasks. Before long, he's leading people to Jesus Christ. And so we serve, and we say, God, I'm gonna be a servant, God, but I'm willing to do where you want me to go and I'm willing to be who you want me to be. And so he speaks to the shepherds, he speaks to the servants. And then lastly, Paul talks to the saints in this chapter. So interesting as he talks to the saints. Now, some of us in his say, well, I'm not a saint, so I must not be speaking to me. Let me define saint for you. A saint is someone who's been saved by Jesus Christ. If you've underneath the blood of Jesus Christ, then you are a saint. If you have surrendered your life to the Almighty God and you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, even though you walk every single day and you stumble and whatever you stumble in, you have sins that you're battling with, the blood of Jesus Christ covers you and that makes you a saint. And so that's the church. And so he closes up talking to the church. Verse 14, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. You see, he now draws back and says, remember, my word here is showing you how to live your life and how to live in God's household. And so he dresses the saints. So he's basically saying, now you look back. I gave you some ideas about the elders. I gave you some ideas about the deacons. I gave you some ways to live your life. But all of this applies to everybody who's in Christ. He's putting before us kind of the model way to follow Christ. He's putting before us, here's character qualities that all of us should desire. And all of us should be working towards with the power of the Spirit. 
And then 16, he says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. And so you see the instructions for our conduct. Paul has written this entire letter so people would know how to act in a church. In church, our conduct must be different than the conduct of this world. What you hear today is many people say, why do I need the church? It's no different than the way I live my life. People are looking to see, are we really different? Why would they want to choose our God if our life's not different? Why would they want to re- uh, submit to the, to the God of love and to, to a Savior who's given his life if we don't love? And so there's a call here for us to make sure our conduct is the conduct of Christ. And then he says, here's your incentive. Look at verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by his spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the word, world was taken up in glory. He points to six things about Jesus. He closes out the chapter and he lifts up the name of Jesus and says, here's Jesus. He appeared in the flesh. God came as a man. His name was Jesus. He says he was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on the world, and he was taken unto glory. And so he lifts up the name of Jesus as we live our lives this way to honor Jesus. We live our lives this way to point people to Jesus. And so those of us who name Jesus, who accept him as our Savior, he says we live that way so we don't bring reproach. Remember the beginning of this chapter? Be above reproach. Be above reproach. Why? Because we point people to Jesus. He starts with the call to live a life of holiness above reproach. Why? To point people towards Jesus. So he starts with the call and he ends kind of a bookend in this chapter. He says that's the goal, not just for elders, not just for deacons, but for all saints, for all those who are part of God's church. Bow your heads with me.